0: Well, I want to uh, thank you for, uh, for those of you who have been praying for my family. And if, um, if you haven't been praying for our family, uh, that's okay. You can start now. Um, we've, we've, kinda, we've had a little bit of a bumpy road over the last nine months. Um, end of the, the summer, my sister was diagnosed with cancer, with sarcoma. And so the fall, she's been going through um, chemo and radiation. In a couple weeks, she'll have surgery. Um, so we're praying for a really good outcome for her. And then shortly after she was diagnosed, I was di- diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And, um, you know, it was really a- another miraculous thing. R- right after I was diagnosed, a couple of our former students got in, in contact with us. Like I was- got my diagnosis on a Friday. They find- found out about it. And then Sunday evening, these, these two ladies uh, that we've known for years, they were in the exact offices that we needed to uh, be in at MD Anderson. So while the offices were closed over the weekend, they were getting me scheduled to get into MD Anderson uh, for my consultation and surgery. So, I, you know, I, it, it just happened super fast, and I got in. I had surgery, and I'm, I'm really uh, doing pretty well. I even got a cool scar out of it, you know, if you want to see that. Right across my neck, it's like hang them high, right? Um, I'm still kind of figuring out if I need to do any more treatment, but um, doing, doing really well, and I appreciate prayer for that. Uh, and then about a week and a half ago, my wife's uh, sister passed away, and she had had a real long, uh, difficult battle with diabetes, uh, real difficult over the past two or three years. She'd had a couple kidney transplants and um, just, you know, a tough battle. But at the same time, we just saw a lot of just spiritual receptivity and growth in her life. And so, you know, was, um, we're, we're grieving, I will tell you. My wife is really grieving and it's hard as a husband to um, know how to love my wife well as she goes through this process of grief. We're also you know, rejoicing. She, um, Jennifer is her name. Jennifer uh, knows Jesus and she's in his presence. So we're, we're just in that, that period of time where we're just, you know, it's, this has been a bumpy uh, bumpy nine months for us. And so, you know, a lot of you guys have sent us cards and emails and texts just saying that you're praying. And and I can, we have probably more than ever before in our lives, we've just felt the body of Christ sustaining us. And so, uh, it's fun for me to be here over at Southwood with a lot of friends that I haven't seen in a while and just say thank you for praying for us. I'm going to be with you for the next uh, three weeks. We're going to study the book of Malachi and um, you hear that and you go, wow, he really is depressed. Right? <laughs> We're going to be, I'm not, I'm not, actually not, I'm not depressed. I'm not in like a general minor prophet mood. I just, uh, I do like the book of Malachi because it's so good at uh, exposing the condition of our love for the Lord. So, if you're not there already, turn to Malachi. It's the very last book in the Old Testament. And we're going to be looking at Malachi 1, verses 1 through 5 this morning. Uh, Have you ever heard the phrase, tough love? It's horrible, isn't it? It sounds horrible, right? Tough love. Or uh, loving discipline, which sounds uh, equally nasty. Um, discipline never feels like love, right? Even the writer of the Hebrews, he said, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. All discipline feels sorrowful, not joyful. a matter of fact, you know, I don't remember my kids ever running into my arms when they were little saying, Dad, thanks for the painful reminder of your love, right? Now, more likely they were thinking, Dad, I don't think you really love me. Right? They're probably wondering if I, in fact, love them. Book of Malachi starts with this phrase. Or says, I have loved you. And if I can uh, geek out on a little grammar for just a minute, it's Hebrew perfect tense, which means this I have loved you, I love you now, and I'll always love you. You are loved. Right? God begins with this declaration to his people that he loves them because he's about to hammer them. But He's about to give them some tough love, some loving discipline. He's going to show them uh, through, his, through his oracle this burden that Malachi is carrying that he genuinely loves them, but he's got to say some really hard things. And so the thread that, that ties the whole book together, that lays the foundation for the book is, don't in the midst of these circumstances doubt that I love you. I have loved you. And as soon as God says these words to his people, they are completely skeptical. Like, Really? Really, have you loved us? I want you to read with me uh, chapter one and verse one. It reads like this The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, How have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, Jacob, but I've hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build the ruins, thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory, the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. And your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. God says, I love you. The people say, uh, we doubt it. (laughs) Why? Well, uh, I'm going to give you a few reasons this morning that, uh, we often share in as well we doubt God's love for three reasons. The first is this, when our expectations are unfulfilled, when the manner in which we expect God to love us, he doesn't actually love us in that way. Now I, I have discovered, uh, in my life that, um, expectations are kind of funny things. We all have them, but we often don't know that we have them until they don't happen. And they're like, Whoa, that's, that's not what I was expecting. Um, You know, when I was finishing up college, my expectation was that I would be married by the end of college or shortly after college, and then I wasn't. I didn't get married until about 31, and so as each year kind of kept ticking by, I'm like, this isn't what I was expecting. This isn't what I was expecting. And then I got married around the age of 31, and I expected that married couples would say to one another, let's have a baby, and nine months later, they'd have a baby. And we didn't. We went through four years of no baby, no baby. And that wasn't what I expected. And then we had our son, Benjamin, and I thought, okay, well, this is how it works. And now we'll decide and we'll have another baby and that will happen. So my wife got pregnant again and she had a miscarriage. And then she got pregnant again and she had a miscarriage. And then she got pregnant again and she had a miscarriage. And like, that wasn't what I was expecting. And I didn't know that I was expecting it until it didn't happen. Because I kind of thought that I would make my plan and if God needed to participate in any way, he would do what I was expecting. And he didn't. And I say, God, do you really... Love me. Well, you certainly don't love me as I was expecting to be loved. And, you know, when we look at the book of Malachi, the people are, are, that's what's running through their hearts and minds. They're wrestling with these unfulfilled expectations. Really, two big ones. The first is this. They expected greater material blessings, and they weren't experiencing it. And they expected a more trouble-free life. And instead, they're going through trials, they're going through tribulations, and they're not getting blessed materially, materially. And they say, God, do you really, in fact love us. Now what I'd like for, to do is just pause for a second, and I want to I put this in historical context. And this is going to be really easy for you guys because Blake spent three weeks, right? He took you all the way through the entire Bible. And so you're going to know exactly where you are. We are in the, the time period uh, right at the very end of the Old Testament. We're going to walk into that. And then remember there's 400 years of silence and then John the Baptist and Jesus show up. So you know right where we're at. Uh, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 B.C., and the reason for that is because uh, Judah, the southern kingdom, had rejected God. Right? P- specifically, they had become idolatrous like all the nations around them, and because of their idolatry, they were neglecting the Sabbath. Instead, they were just working all the way through the Sabbath. They weren't trusting God to provide for them. And instead, they were driving their servants and driving their slaves. And they were, they were gobbling up the property of the people poor around them. They were oppressing the poor. In other words, they looked like all of the nations around them. They didn't look any different at all. And God said, this is my land and you are my people. And I put you here so that you would look different. So people would, would see you and they'd say, oh, that's what their God must be like. And so you know what? We're going to take a break here. And you're going to be off of the land. And so God exiled his own people. But then he made a promise to them that they would return. Remember, that's the new, part of the new covenant. New covenant promise, while they're in exile, as a discipline for all of their sin, God says, I've loved you. I've loved you, and I, and, and I haven't failed you. In fact, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to bring you back to the land. So there was a decree issued in 539 B.C. by Cyrus, king of Persia. You can actually read that decree, uh, the last chapter of 2 Chronicles or the first chapter, chapter of Ezra. And he said, anybody who wants to go back and to rebuild the temple, Go. So the people came back to uh, Israel, they returned in 538, they laid the foundation for the temple in 536, and then fear and apathy really set in and they stopped, right? So they just got the foundation laid, they started making some sacrifices, and they stalled out. And so God sent two prophets. He sent Haggai and he sent Zechariah to stir up the people to work and he gave them a vision for what the future would be. So they started working again in 520 BC. The temple was completed in 515 BC. And then a new king, Artaxerxes, sent Nehemiah back to rebuild the walls, right? So people are back in the city, the temple has been rebuilt, but the walls are down, uh, the enemies are all around them, and so Nehemiah comes back, he sees what's going on in the city, and he rebuilds the walls of the city, he institutes a lot of social and, and spiritual reforms, uh, but then the people's expectations are not fulfilled, and they sink again into spiritual apathy, right? Because they're back in the land, but their, their crops aren't very good. Uh, they don't have independence from the Persian Empire. Uh, they're paying exorbitant taxes. Uh, enemies are all around them, constantly threatening them. And this isn't what they expected to happen. And they say, God, where is the love? Where, where is your demonstration of love? For us, and so what God's going to say through Malachi is He say, "Well, I do love you. Let me show you how." But then I'm going to ask you the same question: Where is your love for me? Now, we all have expectations. Again, you may you may not really know what they are right now, deeply in your heart, but you're going to find out because some of them may come true, but some of them won't come true. And it may be the expectation for a job or a particular kind of job, or uh, material wealth, or success, or achievement, or a relationship. You have expectations, and when you reach that moment that they don't come true exactly how you want them to or when you want them to, you're going to be forced to step back and say, are my expectations accurate? Do I really understand how God has promised to love me, or am I expecting something altogether different and contrary to or other than the way that God works in my life and in the world? See, sometimes we allow our love to grow cold because we have these expectations, and God doesn't come through. Just like we want him to come through. And we have to stop and examine our own hearts in that moment. Second reason we doubt God's love is when we disregard our own responsibility. Now, um, sometimes we just, uh, you know, we just suffer because we're in a broken world, right? I'm pretty sure I didn't get cancer because I sinned. I'm pretty sure. Um, You know, I examined my heart. I didn't see anything. But, you know, I I remember uh, at a point when I was in high school when that was kind of how my theology was getting itself worked out. I was uh, playing basketball and I sprained my ankle in a game and I immediately thought, what was my sin? Right? I mean, you know, I I don't know if you guys have ever kind of gone that way. Um, But when the spirit convicts you of sin, the spirit's really, really specific. It's not just this generic, you stink. Right? Right? The Spirit always speaks specifically, and so in this context, Malachi, the Spirit's going to speak very specifically, because sometimes we suffer because of the choices that we have made ourselves. Sometimes it's just we're in a broken, fallen world, but often it's choices that we have made. And when that's actually the case, the Spirit's speaking very specifically. So let me make a couple observations for you. First is this. The name Malachi actually means, my messenger. My messenger. Malachi means my messenger in Hebrew. And so Malachi is going to bring a message, but it's not his own. It's actually God's message to God's people. Second observation is this. It's called an oracle or literally a burden. Malachi one one reads like this. The burden. The word of the Lord to Israel through my messenger. Right? It's, it's a burden. Literally, it means something that is difficult to carry it's heavy to lift up and for malachi this is a burden you know there's not a line running out the door to be a prophet in the old testament and it's a stinky job it's terrible nobody said oh awesome let me go deliver bad news to everybody right i mean prophets are are hardly ever loved right after the fact we go oh such beautiful words from isaiah man jeremiah Ezekiel Ezekiel actually said "He said, I've been given this burden and it's like this fire in my bones and I'm trying to hold it in because I don't want to tell people about what's going on in terms of their lives and their interaction with God but I can't if I hold it in it's just going to explode I, but I don't want the job and so Malachi the messenger is carrying this thing that's really heavy, heavy. it's a burden but it's not his own it's from the Lord third observation is this it's, not, it's to the people of God it's not against the people of God but this is for them because God is for them. And because God genuinely loves them, he can't leave them in their self-destructive behavior. And so he sends Malachi with a heavy message, but it's, it's tough love. It's loving discipline because it is for their best. So again, let me give you a little bit more context. The book of Malachi is set in The other book of Nehemiah, historical book. Nehemiah chapter 10, remember Nehemiah came back, begins to rebuild the walls. But also there's some social, cultural issues that are going on. Three in particular, uh, regarding marriage, Sabbath, and worship. And we're going to talk about marriage here in a couple more weeks. But uh, their their marriages were not honoring to the Lord. They weren't keeping the Sabbath. They were continuing just to work through the Sabbath. And uh, their worship, they were not setting aside any time or provision at all for worship, even when they were going through the motions. So in Nehemiah chapter 10, they made promises regarding these three things. Nehemiah chapter 13, Nehemiah left, he went back to Persia and then he returned again to Jerusalem. And in that course of a couple of years, the people broke their promises in regard to worship, Sabbath, and marriage. So Nehemiah 13 brings up the same issues again. And then Malachi addresses these problems once again. Now, apparently they were keeping the Sabbath at that point in time. They hadn't drifted back into idolatry, but they were just going through the motions of worship, and their heart wasn't in it. And their marriages, once again, were not honoring to the Lord. And that was why they were struggling in life. And they were struggling as a consequence of their own choices, but they didn't want to own the responsibility They were seeing themselves as victims of their circumstances and really even victims of God rather than the agents who are responsible for the circumstances they were living in. And I would say we do the same thing. When the Spirit comes and convicts us really specifically of things that need to change in our life, often what we want to do is we want to shift that blame to some other place. I I had a history of doing this. I know this really well because uh, I was the younger of two children. So, you know, that has disadvantages, you don't get certain privileges, obviously, but also you can shift blame often to the older sibling, right? When, when uh, my parents would leave, they would leave uh, my sister in charge, which was kind of a drag, but on the other hand, I could also kind of get away with stuff. So I remember one time, um, they left, my sister was in charge, and I went down into our basement, and I, I was whittling, and I was not allowed to carve on anything, you know, I wasn't supposed to have knives out and stuff. When my parents were gone, but I did anyway. And so I'm cutting, 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 and whack! I mean, I just cut a big chunk off of my thumb, and I ran upstairs. Ah, you know, my sister and I was pretty young at the time. I'm bleeding all over the place. My parents came home; they were so sympathetic with me. And she was in trouble, and like you know, right? Uh, I just kind of let me slide that blame over to someone else. And you know, they weren't idiots. I got in trouble too, but it was it was a habit. I'd I'd rather let someone else take that responsibility. Crazy story I I heard uh, several years ago that illustrates this. There was a lady in in Canada, and she went to to her office party. Linda Hunt, I think her name was, 52 years old, went to her office party. She got drunk and then crashed her car on the way home. And uh, then she sued her company because they let her drive home, even though... They had offered to get her a cab. She refused the cab. They said, well, if you don't want the cab, can we get you a hotel room? She refused the hotel room. She got in her car and drove home, crashed her car on the way home, and sued her company, and she won $300,000. I (laughs) go, oh, Canada, right? I mean, seriously. Uh, Another illustration of this is a little more encouraging, and you'll be able to relate to this some. Uh, There was a student at a university who, uh, he actually, he fell out of his dorm room window, and he, he sued the university because they hadn't made the windows stronger so that he wouldn't fall out of his dorm room window, right? Because he had been gesturing to his uh, fellow students as they passed by, leaning against the window, right? And the window broke, and he sued the university. He did not win that one, which is encouraging to me, right? (laughs) But the university had the sanity to say, no, no, you should have not been doing that, and you were responsible for leaning against the window, right? And he literally fell out three stories. He survived. He was okay, but Can you imagine? I would love to have seen that. Um, <laughs> that's, that is human nature, people. We, that is what we do. God came to Adam and He said, Adam, what have you done? And he said, The woman <laughs> that you gave to me, right? You made her God. She gave me the fruit I ate. Eve, what have you done? The serpent we deflect. And the only way forward is for us to own it. Okay. Let me give you a principle. We can't see God clearly if we don't look at ourselves honestly. Sometimes we just have a, a, a messed up view of God because we're not willing to look at ourselves honestly. That's where a confession comes in. Confession means literally in Greek to say the same thing. God says that's sin and we say, yes, you're right. And it's my sin. It means to say the same thing that God says. So confession, if I can give you a metaphor, is like God uh, being allowed to take off our glasses. He cleanses the lenses lenses, and we put them back on and we go, okay, that's what God is genuinely like. He's for us. And the reason he loves us difficultly with tough love or gives us loving discipline is because he doesn't want us to continue on this path of self-destruction. And our next step is to say, God, you're right. God, you're right. So sometimes we doubt the love of God because we disregard our own responsibility. A third reason is this. We overlook the evidence of his love. Read with me again, chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation, appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. This is a tricky passage. What what does he mean by love and hate? Remember, there were two sons of Isaac, Jacob and Esau. Uh, Esau, the firstborn, Jacob, was the secondborn, and God says, Jacob, who would later become Israel, Esau, who would later become the Edomites, says, Jacob I have loved. Well, the word love in Hebrew uh, sometimes can refer to, to affection or emotion, but not always. Often what it refers to is, is choice. Now, let me illustrate for you from the Gospels. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus says, if anyone, does not, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Is Jesus saying, you need to feel uh, animosity toward father mother wife children brothers and sisters clearly not he's this is not an emotional term in fact it's illustrated beautifully when jesus was hanging on the cross and there's one person in particular that he takes care of and who is that his mom right his mom he says to john his disciple he says john who's his closest friend this is now your mother please take care of her he expresses that deep affection for her on the other hand partway through his ministry When his family thought that he was crazy, right? And they show up at the house and people say, Hey, your mother and your brothers, (laughs) your family, they're outside and they're ready to take you away. They think you're crazy, right? He says, who's my mother? My brother, my father, my sisters. Those who do the will of my father. Who is in heaven, right? It was a choice. A choice to put God first in Christ's life. So here as well, this is not an emotional term. It's not in a term of affection What? God is saying to his people is, I have chosen you. I have chosen you. And you don't deserve it. Why did God choose Jacob over Esau? Was Jacob more deserving? The answer is, is, is absolutely not. you remember what the name Jacob means? Deceiver, right? It means deceiver. So I want you just to imagine that, right? Imagine that. Your first or your second child, your child comes out and you look at this child and go, this is not going to go well. Let's name him Deceiver. I can already tell. I mean, you'd name your son Deceiver? It was already in him and it showed in his life. But God said, no, I'm going to choose to bless all of the nations of the earth through this one who is just so deceptive. That is grace. God's Gracious choice to him, not because he deserved it. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 7 reads like this The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Do you see the parallelism there? He says, set his love is the same as choice. I chose you, but not because you were bigger or better or stronger or more righteous. I chose you to demonstrate how powerful my grace and kindness is. So God says, you want me to show you how, uh, how I've demonstrated my love for you? I chose you, and you don't deserve to be chosen. Second, he protected the people, and he preserved the people. Read with me again, Malachi 1. I've loved you, says the Lord, verse 2, but you say, How have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I've loved Jacob, but I've hated Esau. And I've made his mountains a desolation, appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom, right, which is the nation that would come from Esau, though Edom says, we've been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And then we'll call them the wicked territory, the people toward whom whom the Lord is indignant forever. So if love means God's choice, hate doesn't mean that he emotionally felt animosity toward them, but he didn't choose them to be the channel of blessing. God said, I'm going to choose for for, uh, Jacob and his descendants to be the ones through whom all the nations will be blessed. We know now that that's through Jesus, right? That the Messiah would come through Jacob's line, but it wouldn't come through Esau's line. And so Jacob has no right to boast because he wasn't better than his brother. On the other hand, Esau has to claim some responsibility because Esau was the firstborn. Remember, Esau was the firstborn. He was Because he was born first, he had all of the, the rights of the firstborn. The birthright meant that all the promises that had been made to his father Isaac would be transferred to him as the firstborn. That is, all the promises that through you, Esau, all of the nations will be blessed. And how much did Esau value those promises of God? Do you remember? Less than a bowl of soup. Less than a bowl of soup. He was out in the field. He hadn't killed anything. He came back. He was hungry. And Jacob says, want a bowl of soup? Oh, yeah, love some. Well, give me your birthright. What's it worth to me? What's it worth to me? By law, he would have been the firstborn. He would have been the one through whom all of the promises would be kept. But he didn't value those at all. And so he gave them away, literally, for a bowl of soup. Now, what's interesting if you trace the rest of the story is that the brothers actually reconciled, right? Esau got pretty mad about this later. He's like, man, you tricked me, you deceived me. No wonder you're called deceiver. Dad named you right, right? But then they came back together. Jacob went off to Mesopotamia, got a family. So he was coming back. Esau came out to meet him. And he thought Esau would kill him. But he forgave him. The brothers actually reconciled with one another. So when Israel was taken down to Egypt, became a nation, 2 million people. They were brought into the wilderness and God said, I'm going to give you the law. And part of the law, in the law, he said, don't despise the Edomites because they're your brother. Don't despise them. In fact, they'll be the first nation you're going to interact with because the most direct route out of Egypt and into the promised land would go through the Edomites' territory. So they sent word ahead and said, we're your brothers. Will you allow us to pass through into our inheritance? And the Edomites said, no. They said, really... we're we're your flesh and blood and we'll just stay on the road. We won't go in the fields. We won't eat the crops. We won't drink water from your well. If if our people take anything, we'll pay for it. Please let us come through. And the Edomites said no. And they amassed their army and they threatened to destroy Israel. That is time after time after time, they rejected God and his promises. So when the Babylonians came in and they took the nation of Israel away. They also uh, scattered the Edomites, and then the Edomites later were uh, overrun by the Greeks, and then the Romans, and then the Nabataeans, over and over and over again, because they rejected, they rejected God. And then God turns to uh, Jacob and his family, the Israelites, and he says, you probably deserve to be destroyed again, also. But read with me chapter 3, verse 6. But I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Why, why does Israel exist at all today? Why why are there Jews uh, preserved today after so many persecutions? Just because God's faithful to his promises. God is faithful. How have you showed us that you loved us? I've showed you that I loved you when I chose you and you didn't deserve to be chosen. Showed that I loved you when I protected you and preserved you when you could have been destroyed and wiped out. How has God proven to us that he loves us? Well, I would say that our temptation is to look at our circumstances and whether or not our expectations of God have been fulfilled or not in the manner that we want them to be fulfilled. And then when we begin to suffer, we say really? Or when we're forced to wait, we say, really? Lord, have you loved us? Romans chapter five, verse eight, apostle Paul wrote, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's, there's one supreme way that you know that God is for you. And that is the cross of Jesus Christ and not your circumstances. Because you know what? Um, there's suffering in this life. (laughs) There's suffering in this life. But God has demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were completely undeserving of his love, he said, you're enemies, you're sinners, you're not even looking for me, but I'm going to chase you down. And I'm going to prove to you that I love you by giving you what's most valuable to me, that is my son, Jesus. It is the enduring reality of the cross that demonstrates the love of God for us. And I want to challenge you and encourage you, if you've never said to God, yes, God, I I do believe that you love me. My life is not circumstantially all that I would like for it to be, but you've proven your love for me by giving me Jesus. I'm convinced. Let me encourage you this morning just to call out to God and say, God, I'm convinced. I believe. I trust you. Now, the moment that happens, all your circumstances won't change. (laughs) But you'll know, you'll be convinced that God is for you because he's given you Christ. Now, one more reason that we doubt God's love, when we fail to look beyond ourselves and beyond our immediate circumstances. Chapter 1, verse 5, it says, Your eyes will see all of this, and you will say, The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. God's doing something great, he says to Israel, and it's not really even just about you, but he wants to involve you in it. And he loves you too much to leave you in your self-destructive ways, and that's why sometimes your circumstances don't work out well. Right? Sometimes it's just because we live in this, this broken, fallen world, right? I mean, I, uh, even you know, uh, getting cancer is giving me opportunities to talk to friends uh, about Jesus. My sister called me yesterday, and he said, she said, "You know you won't believe this. I, it's a friend I've been praying for for years. She was driving me to my appointment, and she said, "Hey, would you let me come to church with you sometime?" Like, this lady has expressed no interest in anything spiritual, but she's seen my sister go through suffering, and it's begun to open up her heart. Right, And so, church, sometimes God just allows us to, to run through tough times. I mean, I, I would not have chosen the last nine months. But on the other hand, there's so many things I would have missed out on if God hadn't brought the, the, the challenges and the trials into uh, my life. Uh, my sister's, uh, sister-in-law's passing has just been so hard on our, our family, but it's, it opened up conversations the entire time we were up in Oklahoma to talk about the big issues of life, right? Life and death and suffering and, and you know, disease and decay and, and life after. Is there such a thing? I mean, we just conversation after conversation after conversation. You have to have them because you're sitting there in the midst of grief and God gives us these moments, right? And he says, can you look beyond yourself? Can you look beyond your current circumstance and realize, I'm doing something amazing in the world. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to draw people to myself because I love them. And I want to convince them that I love them. And so I want you to suffer well. So you can point them to the cross. So, you know, maybe you, you, uh, you know, we're into February now and you just started 2019 and you had a great 2018. Everything was running your way. Awesome. You know, that's great. And I hope 2019 is the same, but it might not be right. There's just a chance that you might hit some bumps in the road. And I want you to remember this. God is for you. God is for you, and he's proven it in the cross. Or maybe 2018 was, uh, yours was like mine, it was it was a little rough, and you know we kind of feel like we're limping into 2019, if we're honest. Uh, and maybe you're in that same place, I want you to remember the same thing. God is for you. Right? God is for you, and he's proven it by giving you Jesus. And don't forget that. Father, I pray that as your spirit speaks, we would... Uh, Believe the truth of the gospel, even if we've believed it before. That we believe it fresh again this morning, and, and I pray that as your Spirit s- speaks and brings words of conviction, that we would just own 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 our ways, own the things where we've um, done things that are displeasing to you, and probably a bit destructive to ourselves. I pray that we'd have courage to do that, so we could see you clearly as so we see ourselves clearly, and I pray, Father, uh, that we would, um, in the midst of that. Moment, uh, You take our eyes off of our, our own failures. You take our eyes off of our circumstances that it can be frustrating and unexpected. And we, you put it back on the cross of Christ. I thank you for the proof of your love in Jesus. And I pray that we'd live in that this week. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, God bless you guys. We'll see you again next week. If you want to just read through the whole book of Malachi, it'll take you about five minutes. We'll be back there next week.